Good evening, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Today, for the first time in forever, uh, I am joined by Julian Rabbit Murdoch. It's not been that long. I mean, I guess it has. It's I been think, a while. I think it has been literal months, if not the better part of a year. I think it's probably been the better part of a year. Yeah. I think that's true. Uh, we also welcome back, once again, our friend from the Game Design Roundtable, David Heron. I am here to tell you why the games you love are terrible. <laughs> our listeners, our listeners really love that service. Uh, actually, right. um, you should you you should actually put that up on Kickstarter. And another thing I don't like about XCOM. Yeah. Um, so today we're going to be talking about a board game that I've been very curious about for a long time: uh, GMT Games Sekigahara. The Unification of Japan, from designer Matthew Calkins and artist Mark Mahaffey. It's a war game uh, about the final campaign of the Sengoku period in which uh, Tokugawa Ieyasu finally won sole rulership of feudal Japan. So if you know like the, the Shogun games, uh, this is the sort of epilogue to Shogun that you never actually see because none of these people were, were alive uh, during, during this period. And you know, I, I mentioned the artist here because honestly, like the way I came to this game is I started seeing people like uh, tweeting pictures of it at Gen Con a couple years ago. And I sort of made a note of it. Uh, and then I, I came across it in the flesh. And uh, it is a a beautiful and uh, thematically appropriate uh, board game in which you command troops uh, with these with the appropriate like uh, Japanese clan symbols on them. And uh, they are played on this gorgeous map. But the important part is, because they are large wood blocks, uh, everything is basically played in secret. Uh, it is a game where you can have large stacks of, uh, stacks of units, but your opponent doesn't necessarily know how strong that, that stack is, uh, except for hazarding, hazarding a guess based on how many blocks. And that interacts with another element of this game, which is sort of loyalty checks. Uh, historically, the Battle of Sekigahara was turned... Uh, at a crucial moment because one of the major clans on one side sort of defected at the last minute. And so there's a degree of uncertainty uh, in this game as well. So it's it's a very interesting, it's an interesting game that blends, um, I would say it blends like wargaming and uh, politics and logistics uh, together in in some very interesting ways. Uh, and so I was keen to give it a try and I finally got a chance uh, this week with with both of you gentlemen. So you know, I think you know to sort of to sort of start us off. Why don't we talk a little bit about the the part of the game that I I, I found most uh, notable and also the hardest to grasp until Heron uh, explained to me what I was doing wrong, uh, which is that Sekihara is in many ways a war game about not doing things, about not taking actions uh, until the until the appropriate uh, moment. Uh, David, you want to tell us like how how this game sort of models the fact like of growing command capacity and its expenditure? Uh, sure thing. Um, so you've uh, you've already mentioned the sort of the incomplete information that comes from these stacks of blocks that represent. Uh, the troops from different clans by what sort of mon is represented on the block. Um, there's another part of uh, incomplete information, and that's uh, every turn each player is allotted uh, a hand of cards. Start the game with five? Five. Six. Five, yeah. And those cards have corresponding mons, and those are what you use to activate uh, a unit in battle. So even though you have a big stack of eight or even, you know, ten uh, blocks... Um, you need cards to actually make them relevant to the battle. Um, if you only have three cards, then your potential is really only three blocks worth. And 
There are some multiplicative rules about, you know, set making or, you know, getting, you know, there some vaguely rummy-esque uh, sort of set making or runs um, that allow you to sort of uh, get more and more bonuses. Um, but it's these it's these cards that really allow you uh, power in battle. Now, the cards also allow you to move and muster troops during your movement phase. Um, by discarding cards, um, you're sort of exchanging uh, your ability to move around the battlefield, but also to bring in new troops. Um, now, the the sort of the twist, and this all makes sense, and at the end of every turn, both players you know draw the same number of cards, give or take who controls some victory points or some victory condition uh, castles, but the that's an, another story. But the big thing is uh, at the end of your turn, the player discards half their hand, and it rounds up to the player's benefit. Um, in our and so in this way, um, the card disparity—that is, the ability for you to mobilize uh, troops in like one big push—can um, scale if you if one player or, or if if players sort of uh, they they hold hands and there's no maximum hand hand size and so when uh, rob and i first were playing uh rob was very eager to move his troops along the battle get some engagements take some resources i'm a child of blitzkrieg doctrine you put that, me in a military situation i'm gonna go blitzkrieg. you gotta go that's right yeah. and 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 get and 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 also there's you know there are these there's an opportunity like the first game that we played the, had a straggler and you're i'm gonna use the overrun rule and i'm gonna kill that thing and getting a, a thing off the board um <clears throat> but a couple turns in we realized that where rob is is only keeping one card going into the next turn i was keeping two or three and by the time we get into about the fourth turn and really we're now engaged in multiple combats I had four more cards than him, which meant I could mobilize more troops. And, and, and you get those back, right? Because and, after, and after every, every battle, you get all your cards back. Right. Yeah. And so I was just able to, um, uh, just in, the, in both the games that we played, uh, was was able to sort of uh, turtle and then boom and just sort of uh, steamroll uh, to, to some pretty decisive uh, sort of board control states. Now, did you play both sides? Did you play no. both? Okay, so which side did you play? I played as the Tokugawa. Okay, so the interesting thing to me about this game, aside from, and we'll get into some of the mechanics, that um, I think it both steals from classic blocks games, uh, like Hammers the Scots and Julius Caesar and things like that, and also does differently. But one of the most interesting parts is that it is it is significantly asymmetrical uh, in that you have sort of a set starting position every time the game starts. There's some randomness in terms of what units may or may not be there, but it's pretty much a set starting position every time. And... Uh, it's it's highly asymmetrical. Now, there's there's similar win conditions in that uh, you have to have a certain amount of territory control, either castles or resource points, uh, and whoever has the most wins, or if either player kills the other's ultimate general, you win the game. So it that's symmetrical, but the map setup, the mobility of one side versus the other, they're very, very different. And you've got very limited ability to spawn new resources on the board. You you know, you might be getting a couple of units on the board every turn. They can only come at very specific places. So, uh, you know, you can if you if all you're drawing are these units that are way in the boonies on your board, 
just getting them to a position to be into battle can take you multiple turns, and it's only a seven-turn game. It's very, very quick. And that asymmetry in positioning I found really fascinating, and, and I think the reason I would want to play this game mo many more times is not so much the strategic decision-making sort of a la a game of chess, but more the I don't feel like I've even started to get my hands around optimal uh, positioning on this board, which uh, is is quite unique. Yeah, when when we were playing after the first game, we were sort of going over our heads what we sort of thought about it. I I I, I, I said I feel like it's not a solved game, but like there's there's probably some like pretty like straightforward best practices, but I can't see them. And and I think like at least at the Tokugawa side, which is the side I, I played twice, they're a little bit more spread out. Um, the other side is um, more uh, uh, stuck in around the capital, around uh, Kyoto and Osaka, and um, and Tokugawa has a couple of powerful units, and and they're a little bit more more spread out. But um, I feel like there's probably some like. Best if you if you watched like really really skillful players, there's probably like some pretty standard opening moves, and I would like to figure out what those are. So I think that that's kind of interesting. Well, yeah, I definitely um. So I played it over the course of like three days. Um, first game was a learning game in which uh, I wouldn't say I got completely destroyed by Heron because I got off to a decent start. I crushed a pretty sizable army, and then the card thing caught up with me. But the second game. Uh, David had figured out that the card economy was entirely the name of the game. And I was still trying to do like, well, maybe if I Blitzkrieg harder. So <laughs> that's, that was my second game was, uh, was Sakigahara 2 uh, Blitz harder. Uh, and by like the third week, because the game goes in this, uh, each phase of the game is a week and each week has two turns. Uh, crucially, you only draw once. Uh, so you draw once per week, and then you play two turns in a row. Uh, and so by the the, thir the third week of the game, um, like Heron was kind of sitting on this bounteous stack of, of cards. Uh, and except in cases where I got like really miracle draws, um, I could not, I simply could not get enough troops deployed uh, to ever beat him. And I took all those lessons. The last thing Heron says to me is he's, as he's leaving uh, Rabbit's house as his way out the door, he's like, "Card economy, dude, you got to hold on to your cards." And then he was gone, <laughs> and just a, in a in a puff of design smoke. Uh, in, in a, <laughs> um, so when you and I played uh, Julian, I was sort of internalizing that lesson a lot more and starting to play the game uh, differently based on my understanding the value of the cards. But what was cool about that was. Like once I understood that, suddenly other things started to emerge. Sort of that, like that, that David is sort of implying that, that there are there are different strategies strategies you can adopt. Uh, you know, with that with that sort of slightly more advanced understanding. Like there's there's some big choices uh, that this game offers you um, that that I find really interesting. One is that the Tokugawa, I think, generally get a little bit stronger, but I also felt like their armies were much more homogenous. Like, Tokugawa clan troops comprised the vast majority of their army, is is how it seemed to me. Um, yeah, and, and I think, you know, there's it's always tricky with a game like this, which is, you know, clearly set in a historical period. It is by no means a tactical war game reenactment of the particular battle which happened in one day. It's almost political in the sense that 
much of this game is about maneuvering and setup and and frankly bluffing you know here's my big stack and do i can i actually make that stack useful in combat or not where have i hidden my leaders so it is very much this game of cat and mouse um and historically uh, you know the, one of the reasons it's an interesting battle is that um tokugawa who ended up winning was actually enormously outnumbered um i, I had to look it up today i will admit but it was 120,000 to 70 was the rough estimate and it was mostly a lot of political maneuvering and convincing these people to fight and those people not to fight um, that, that frankly help help them win the day. Um, so it, I think it captures that very, very well, even though it's not particularly a, a sort of head to head war game, the actual mechanics of being in combat are very simple uh, and, and force structure, as you just said, really determines the the end game if you've been lucky enough to get a consistent draw of both cards representing a particular daimyo and the units of that daimyo you can really wreak havoc so there's there's for a game with no dice in it it's actually got a tremendous amount of luck in it well and that introduces i think one of the more interesting dilemmas of the game as you play it uh which is that there are huge advantages advantages you get from having a homogenous force where all the soldiers are from one clan uh, because to sort of model the idea that there's like synergy between clan members, like those units will fight alongside each other better than a bunch of strangers coming together uh, would. So if you deploy each additional block from a given clan that you deploy uh, gets a plus one bonus to and and all the math is very simple you're you're basically you're you know the the attack value of a block uh starts at how many clan symbols are printed on it the second block you bring out from the same clan gets a plus 1 bonus the third block you bring out from the same clan suddenly has a plus 2 bonus appended to it so if you can bring out a a stack of uh same clan units those later units are going to pa- pack a massive wall up but the risk you're taking there is a homogenous force is completely worthless if you don't have those cards in your hand uh, to bring them out. And so there's this there's this other element you're, you're sort of you're, you're sort of playing around with, which is, you know, to what degree do you want a mix of units in there? So at least like the you know on a given draw, you can probably do something with that army. Uh, versus you know, do you want to basically try to min max the battle system and have uh, really homogenous armies out there that from time to time might just be parked there uh, at a crucial moment and you can't do anything. Um, yeah, and, and, I, and I think there's, you know, like many games, um, I think a lot of this is a, a lot of this game comes down to how to mitigate and avoid those sorts of luck. And so um, what I found, at least on the Tokugawa side, is as I mentioned before, you're spread out. Um, and I think you're set up to maybe um, in, engage in multiple places quickly and at once. And if you can maintain uh, a couple of stacks of armies that are homogenous and maybe one stack uh, that is, you know, cavalry or riflemen, which is this other mechanic, which is very similar to, you know, the bonuses that we talked about. It's just that like riflemen go well with riflemen, regardless of what clan they're belonging to. You just need the special, you know, activate riflemen or cavalry card. Um, so, what I was able to do or what I did to sort of help mitigate those losses is by uh, taking advantage of the redraw after battle. And so sometimes I would pitch um, battles that I expected to, to lose that weren't particularly that important 
for the sole purpose of ditching my hand to, to, to redraw and basically to try to stack that hand full of the same clan such that in the next uh, the next battle, because the attacker gets to pick the order of battles, uh, I had a, you know a, a dominant hand, and uh, it's it served me well on more than one turn. Yeah, I think the card mechanic here is is it's where most of the luck is the drawing extra units because you do get to choose where to deploy those units. It's not like you've got a guy on the wrong end of the board. You're only going to have a guy on the wrong end of the board if you put him there and, and used an action to do that. Um, the card mechanic is is really delightful. Um, and it reminds me a little bit of, uh, you know, a lot like the Command and Colors games to a certain extent, which are a, a different kind of card play where you, your cards correspond to areas of the board that you can move. Um, but in certain versions of it, they also correspond to certain types of units. Um, and so it, it gives you that sort of idea of strategic limitation in a really, I think, lovely way, uh, which is very hard to actually get into a war game because generally if we're playing advanced squad leader or something like that, you are the all seeing, all knowing strategic dominatrix of your forces and you knew you know how it went and you know how it went last time you tried to play it and you can kind of do whatever you want and this idea of having limited information or limited ability to communicate with your troops to get them to do what you want um we've seen it in a lot of games but i, I think this kind of card mechanic is is the most clever way i've seen anybody ever do it that's interesting so so is that a, i've never played one of these wooden block games um, yeah, I, I have not either. Actually, this is so, the very so, first block. So, um, can you can you enlighten me or educate me on how sort of combat is normally resolved? Is it well, is it just so straight strategia? Strategico? To me, the 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 simplest. The easiest comparison in sort of block game space is Hammer of the Scots, which is a lot of people's first and sometimes only block game that they play. You know, you you sort of have to think why would you put these giant blocks on the board? Well. They're easy to to do the stratego thing where you know you don't know what the other guy's moving around on the board. Um, so that's one thing. Um, but the other is it, generally you're working with pretty limited numbers of units, right? I mean, it's already hard to have eight units in a stack on this because you end up with the Jenga problem and they actually fall over. Hammer of the Scots does a similar thing where you've only got a certain number of units you're putting on the board. Um, most block games do a little bit more what Hammer of the Scots does, which is each individual unit has sort of traditional war gamey stats, attack or defense or movement, etc. Um, that that you get displayed when you go into a combat, but but otherwise they are sort of blinded. Blind units have a certain set of rules. Unblinded units get to use their special abilities. So if I recall, Hammer of the Scots has a pretty straightforward uh, wargaming dice mechanic. You know, you get X, you know, if you've got a three on your combat thing, a one, two, or three is a hit, et cetera, et cetera. Different units get you extra dice. It's pretty, pretty standard stuff that you would have seen any number of times. So the blocks are really just there to make it more like Stratego and you can get away with it because you don't have that many units. Um, and that's a much more traditional use of blocks. What I think was so cool here, um, aside from the fact that it's just beautiful and the blocks are sort of interesting shape and, and um, you're really working with a very small number of units. Um, most block games don't have this idea of stacking, right? Often you're just using one or two units at a time. So this is kind of cool. It doesn't work that well because structurally they fall over all the time and, and um, the board itself i warps. found was kind of a weird shape and wasn't folded in the most yeah, traditional way so, and so that was uneven yeah there were some there were some logistical problems yeah so you know but but i actually sort of in, in my mind i kind of enjoyed probably the accidental 
historical component of that that hey you want to make a stack of 10 units there's a reasonable chance you're going to knock it over and your opponent's going to see what's That's in right. it command. Just, like, exactly. there's going to be a weak link somewhere loose lips. operational security goes right out the window exactly. once you get above four so i kind of enjoyed that i don't think that was the intention because there aren't any rules in the book that i saw about what to do when they fall over but but it totally made sense you know it was like a little dread game in the middle of all this. (laughs) Well, and I enjoyed the dynamic it introduced, um, that especially like in, in some of the later stages of games, uh, where that, that, that card, that card drawing, uh, that, that, that card drawing mechanic, uh, after battles starts to really contribute to some exciting, uh, exciting gambling moments, uh, basically as you can, you know, you might have in your hand only enough cards to really fight one battle with one of your armies. But out on the board, you got like four armies or whatever ready to go. And it can actually, like, you can get on a really nice run if you just say, I'm attacking with everybody I've got. And you just hope that you just hope that, that first battle that you can actually fight, you burn through all your cards. And then when you draw up, hopefully one of your other armies will finally be able to do something. Um, which is this kind of cool, like, it's 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 you know we've talked about this game like various forms of luck that can feel good or feel bad right like and this i i i found kind of exciting right because it it sort of encourages that like it, it's that sort of feeling you love i guess when when you're like at a casino gambling or something like that what's what's the flop going to be what like what is actually about to about to happen here uh, i've staked a lot on this play uh and if this goes wrong the entire like house of cards i built sort of comes tumbling down as well uh and when it goes well it, it it's really it's really fun it's really exciting and uh, when it goes badly i just kind of end up feeling like yeah that was that was probably a stupid risk the the best part of that luck mechanic is the single card they have, which is a loyalty card, which uh, is it's this you know the basic mechanic of of combat is I go you go I go you go and we we each have to one up each other. So if I've gotten us to a force of ten, you have to get to eleven, or you're basically declaring that you're losing the battle. Um, and then the person who's winning can pile on and just try to kill as many units as they want. Um, but there's one card, or I guess there are a couple in each deck, which just say loyalty on them, which, again, is historically relevant because the daimyo used to switch sides all the time. So you never actually knew whether these guys were going to fight for you when the day came. Uh, I mean, if, you know, if anybody who's, you know, read any of, you know, the shogunate stuff, it's all about traitors and, you know, backstabbing and all that. Um, and if you uh, if you play a, a, a particular card and say, I'm attacking with this unit, you can sort of interrupt and say, I challenge the loyalty of that unit with this loyalty card and unless you have more cards that could also sort of reinforce that order uh you lose that unit and it comes fights and fights for your side for that one combat and there's a certain i mean it's it's blind luck you have no idea whether or not the other guys got it it's just a pure bluff and and boy it's when it works it was really satisfying to steal a big you know three strength unit from rob and then beat him down with it uh, that that's I, I really like that it that uh that's your most in you know you you really enjoyed that part of the game it's probably what uh in my experience was like the the one part that i would have like reworked um, really yeah in 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 general i felt um so what rob was suggesting of this idea of like rolling the dice and doing more than one um battle at a time and hoping you draw the cards um that type of risk felt 
manageable. It, it felt like uh, there was enough ways that you could sort of use your skill and that it was probably the right way to play the game. And sometimes it would go your way and sometimes it wouldn't. But most games that you play, you know, that's that's how you're going to play it out. The loyalty card felt like it, it, at least in the two games we played, it wasn't really that relevant. I, I don't think it was that clear on like what well, the most effective way of playing it was. They got played more for their initiative order than than their than their actual battle ability. And and those types of mechanics, I always I'm always frustrated where it's like you know you know six out of ten times or something like that, it's going to be irrelevant or or you know seven out of ten times it'll be irrelevant to the game and then three of the ten times it'll actually like swing that the whole game or something like that and i don't know if it's the case in this particular board game but those types of like unlikely but really powerful swings they just never sit right with me whenever whenever they whenever they decide the game it always feels like well that was the 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 edge case let's let's play again so i think they actually so I think they actually play a role beyond when the effect actually happens, right? Cool. I think that's actually the real role is to sort of be, um, I don't know what the right way to put this is, like almost a, a tax on your attention or, or just an extra thing to worry about. It is something that inhibits the acting player from doing something because there, it introduces an element of risk to what otherwise would be a straightforward decision. Well, but it forces you as the attacker to if you want to have real certainty in a battle, which you really can. Like, if you go in with a good stack and a good set of cards behind it, you can genuinely be pretty assured that even flipping the, you know, rolling the dice virtually, you're going to wipe out anybody. It's all the information you really need is there. It's very rare the other guy's going to have also an amazing army and all the cards he needs because you're the one aggressing. But but that ability, you, the, the fact that you need to have that extra card means you really need to be sure, right? So again, you can completely mitigate it as the attacker. You just have to go in knowing that you can't extend your army all the way to the edge of its command. You've got to have a little command and reserve, which seemed pretty strategic and relevant to me. Yeah. It could be that I'm the only person who seems to have played <laughs> one of those cards to totally turn the tide of a battle. No, I mean, it happened a couple times with, with uh, David and I. The, the issue was, was that it was pretty marginal cases uh, in, in both. It, the results in each case were pretty pretty marginal. I think in one case, like uh, da- a unit turned its code, and then David was like, okay, I guess I'll just play this other powerful unit that I can play, and it put the math back in his favor. And I think there, there may have been one other case. I can't remember it. I think I tried, and it didn't work. Yeah, mostly most of the time it was we were blocking each other because uh, you can show that you have the uh, you, you can show that you have the card in reserve uh, that could deploy the next block from that clan, and uh, that that beats the loyalty challenge. Uh, but then, like, what was really cool about the interaction that Julian and I had was uh, I had a pretty significant uh, force advantage, but I really wanted to wipe him out of uh, the corner of the map. So the the way the map is sort of divided is. Um, on the western on the western end you've got uh Kyoto and that's sort of the um that, that that's sort of the Ishida uh side that that that's sort of uh, fighting against Tokugawa that's sort of their home base there's sort of a no man's land in the middle and then there's this really powerful stack uh for Ishida in the eastern end uh which is the um Oisegi clan and they're really powerful, but they're kind of just parked out there in the middle of nowhere, and it's kind of hard to do much with them. Also, because I, I don't, I don't think they have as many uh, cards in the deck as as the other clans. But 
I had a chance like to wipe uh, Julian out of that half of the map. I, I crushed one of his armies uh, early on, and then he brought another one out to try to seize a uh, key crossroads. And I was like, "All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna kill him, and then I'm gonna have I'm gonna run the table on the eastern eastern end of the map." And um, I was leading in the battle. Uh, I was going to beat him, but I wasn't going to wipe him out. Uh, I was going to drive him off uh, with with a little little bit of a force left, and uh, I wanted the full wipe. And so, uh, you know, as well, I knew I knew it was a bad idea. I knew I knew I was getting greedy, but I totally like played that last block of three uh, to go for the complete kill on his army. Out came the loyalty card. It swung the battle against me. Suddenly, I was losing, and my force like I did damage to him. My force got clobbered uh, and had to go retreat into his castle and, and wait out a siege. And that was a really cool, that was a really cool swing. And, you know, okay, it's the only, like, example where it was that dramatic in four games. But, you know, I, I, I don't think that's necessarily a bad return, given that it was always something to assess uh, on any given action. And then occasionally it would have a marginal effect. And then very occasionally it would swing the entire damn thing. Right. Yeah, I, it reminded me, honestly, of um, if you've played the Dune board game, um, I think it's just the Harkonnen have the ability to sort of have a pocket trader uh, in their midst, and it can just completely destroy an attack if it turns out the person making the attack for you was, in fact, a Harkonnen spy. And it just sort of hangs out there as this big horrible consequence that may or may not happen. And sometimes it never happens in the whole game. Um, so I, I don't know. I personally love those kinds of mechanics. It's a light enough war game and it plays so quickly that it's not like I feel like this huge investment in, in brain power and time is, is sort of ruined by that one card. Um, you know, it is, this is a very light game. It sets up in five minutes, plays in about two hours, uh, you know, and it's, it's, you know, I think got a lot of strategic complexity for what is really a, a breathtakingly simple mechanic. Oh, where where does it sort of stand in that in the the sort of the war gaming? Because I'm you know I'm not much of a war gamer, and like now you know I'm three or four days out from from playing it, and I'm still trying to think of like yeah I'd play another game. I don't know if I'd ever pick this as a game that I'd want to play though. So like where does it where does it sort of like uh, is it representative of this larger genre? No, I don't think so. I think you most know? war games are a little fussier. Like, I think it's yeah. lightness is kind of what sets it apart uh, and makes it a little more akin to a game that I think is a war game, but you could you could argue the case, uh, War of the Ring, uh, where, you know, as, as Julian pointed out, as we were packing up Sekigahara, um, <laughs> the, the, the issue with War of the Ring is it's not that complicated. It just takes an hour to set up, and so that's a huge... Uh, obstacle to climb over uh but i think they're, they're both really good really simple war games uh with, with a few systems that interact in, in lots of different interesting ways unfortunately i tend to and this is this is something i think comes up every year during the winter of war gaming uh like the reason a lot of pc war games are, are really esoteric and, and weird is because they're kind of taking their cues from a lot of classic board war games uh, that I, right. I, you know, the old Avalon Hill model was how many how many numbers and values can we fit onto a one by one cardboard <laughs> counter, uh, and can we re, can we create like five different tables that use each of those numbers in different ways? Uh, so I think that is it tends to be a little more representative of war games, except maybe when you consider like GMT, who I, who I feel like um, are are a little bit like on the cutting edge and have been on the cutting edge of like how war game uh, tabletop war game design is evolving. 
Uh, although Bruce might be hearing this and and sort of ripping his speaker out of the wall because uh, there's also an indie war game movement that is is favoring now uh, sort of the stripped down simplified mechanics you see in a lot of uh, Euro games and porting it over to board games. But classically, a game like this would have been each each unit from the Tokugawa clan has five movement points, and here are the here's how movement points work, and right. here's twelve different modifiers for that. Right, and okay. they get they they get this advantage when they're going through swamps, and I mean, it, you know, I part of the reason why all these GMT games and traditional war games have this sort of rigid rules numbering system is because they freaking had to, because everything had an exception. Right. And, you know, oh, well, if you're doing, uh, you know, even even games like um, We the People, which is a pretty it's not really even a war game. It's 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 just a board game, although there's some sort of light combat stuff that goes on, comes from this tradition of traditional war gaming where it's like if Washington is overwintering in February, uh, you know, it's got to you know, he loses X number of troops. But if he's not overwintering there and he's below this line, I mean, it gets ridiculously complicated partially because they're trying to recreate historical events which are inherently asymmetrical and so they get around that by hyper specifying every piece of it um what one of the things that i love about this game and and other simple war games like a memoir 44 um or even something like hammer of the scots which sort of splits the line there um is that they they don't sacrifice gameplay for historicity um and you know this game i'm sure I'm not a super, you know, scholar on the beginning of the Edo period in Japan, uh, but, you know, I'm sure this is taking enormous liberties with all sorts of pieces of history. Um, it's just using the broad paint of this set of combats to tell an interesting tale in a board game. Hmm. Uh, the, 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 the fussiness of, uh, of the movement, I'm, I'm wondering what that adds to the other, the other types or the more traditional styles of war games. Cause in, in this game, um, the board is sort of set up in these these nodes. It it looks a little similar to something like Ticket to Ride, and and a and a and a line can technique, uh, a stack of armies uh, has a has a node and it has to live there, and it's either connected by uh, highways or um, just normal roads. And really, the only, there's a couple of modifiers for movement, um, but movement is pretty restricted. And I found yeah, I found myself like. Instinctually, I felt very restricted, and you sort of said, "Well, it's not as strategic open as chess." And I, th I think the ability for to with relative ease, you can sort of identify all the potential moves that you could make. And I bet you, if you spent long and hard just looking at that map uh, with the initial starting starting uh locations right. and starting armies you, you probably figure out okay well here are the two or three moves that the designers have balanced this map for right like yeah. like yeah, movement 100%. is movement is as balanced as the card deck or the the the, the pool and i f and and it it felt like a point of the of the game where i felt the designer's thumb you know sort of saying like this is this is really the options you have but it was kind of presenting itself in a more open way. And I think that was one of my, you know, like really the only types of games that I've ever played like this are, are the, are the, the, the games workshop Warhammer and Warhammer fantasy battle where, you know, movement and flanking and things like that are, are, you know, there's uh, in, infinity uh, options of, of, of movement. And so this, this felt really restricted. Yeah. There's the movement table 
and the table is bigger than it really needs to be because it's like, oh yeah, if you want to move a stack of units that's like a dozen blocks, like you want to like create a super army to just roll over everything. Um, here's all the ways that can't move. We don't really want you doing that ever. Uh, here's a bunch of rules to make it so that if you do that, uh, you're basically paralyzed and you'll lose the game. And uh, it, it's weird. I also found the movement system. It is really simple. It it it's you only like. Really, you're you're counting to four uh, with with you know a modifier two in play that can add or subtract one, uh, but like really you're you're only counting up to four, and yet for some reason I feel like all of us had trouble sort of like reliably mm-hmm. counting yeah. out how yeah. these moves would work because of the various ways that it added and subtracted movement factors. Well, it's also I think David's right. It's so restrictive that you sort of look at that initial board setting and you're like, oh, so these guys aren't going to play on that part of the map ever, right? There's no situation in which you're going to move Tokugawa all the way to Osaka as a reliable strategy. You might, I mean, theoretically, you could probably get the units there, but you'd spend several of your seven turns, maybe four, just getting them in position. And and while you've done that, you haven't done anything else, right? Because you only get so many actions on the board or you've burned all your cards. And as David pointed out, the card economy is critical. So there's, it, it does feel incredibly limited. I think that's in some ways the biggest nod to history here, to, to reality. Um, it feels a little bit like a few acres of snow in that regard, where you're looking at the map and you're like, oh, I basically have these three or four things that I can do. Which one of these can I optimize for? And 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 I think that 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 Tokugawa. So in the first game we played, it went for I forget what the other castles. My Tokugawa stack went and it took the other castle. And in the second game that we played, I moved Tokugawa uh, uh, westerly through the highway. And you can do it. But there's one path. Like, really, you can move four units, which doesn't give you a movement penalty. You have Tokugawa, which allows it to move one extra. And there's a single path that you can move through that is along a highway. And you can you can get there effectively. But it feels like the movement system um, basically says, in the same way as a game that I'm more familiar with, which is like Puerto Rico. So Puerto Rico is a worker placement game. And in Puerto Rico, if you're playing with four players, there's like the first three turns are pretty much understood. You know, your first player is going to do this and second player is going to take this. And this is how these things work out. And that's the best way to optimize it. And we've figured out the starting, uh, you know, the, the starting player gets this impediment and the player that goes fourth gets this bonus and it all works out and everyone's equal. And I feel like in this game, it's it's very similar where there's like there is the game that we're playing, which is Tokugawa goes through the highway and engages in this way. And then there's the other game where it plays out this other way. And that's dictated by the movement rules. And then when I, my, my, my designer brain just pushes, pushes further and it says, well, okay, if the movement is so restricted, if two players who have played it a lot are just sitting next to each other, could they just hand wave all the movement? And now are they really now like now are they really just like drawing cards and 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 playing Stratego and and that's where this part of me that says like is it something that I want to play is it something that I don't want to play is I is, is I don't is I don't know is there was something about it that didn't feel I I left feeling hungry a little bit well I think I think you were also suffering from not having a strong opponent. Uh, the the first game was okay, but the second game you you grasped a key part of the game, and mm-hmm. I just got blown out of the water for it. Um, I will say, like 
probably my favorite game I played was the first game I, I won against Julian, uh, where I was playing Tokugawa. And I feel like Julian pr- like almost had it in the bag. But I had basically been like following a, a strategy I find that often serves me well in board games, which is do the last thing Heron told you to do. Uh, and, and so you were you were totally like you were totally like Ben Kenobiing, uh, like over in the corner. Uh, and I was playing this entire game of Tokugawa, being pretty conservative and like not doing a whole lot uh, and Save just building up cards. that hand. And then like basically on the last week of the war. You just went uh, to town. Yeah, Julian had really extended. He was controlling a lot of key locations, but I had a hand of like 12 cards. And because now you can force march each unit stack, suddenly, like if you have a big hand, suddenly that mobility you're talking about like increases a great deal. And I think it gets reintroduced via the card mechanic. I think you could almost hand wave away the movement, except for those key locations where suddenly right. there's that extra rule that now your armies can actually kind of blitzkrieg. And so I had this last right. I had this last turn where I had like, you know, five, six armies pretty much sprinting across the map. And I am seizing like territory after territory, fighting battle after battle, and just burning through my deck. Uh, and and rolling I, up Julian. I, I'm surprised to hear you say you think that you could just sort of hand wave movement because to me you could hand wave combat here. Right? Hey. <laughs> the the problem is to me that this game is pretty. And to be fair, I love this game. I really enjoyed mm-hmm. it. I played it twice. I lost twice. One time by one point in the last moment of the last round, and the other time just I got just once again you rolled. you got very Clausewitzian got in, in the second game where you were yeah. like I will take your resource locations yeah, and your muster sites, but. But the I found this game to be mostly about positioning and deception and the actual like once once a combat was going to happen, you might as well. I mean, we we, it it was just there. It was just no, you're you're totally right. You're totally like that's that's of course the combat. I I I guess. Yeah, especially when we're when we're playing when we're playing the game and we're playing the combat. um, Ah. I don't know. There was there was something about it where I, I, I if I was going to sit down with you with with you, Julian, I'd say, hmm, why don't we just open up a bottle of wine and play cribbage? Well, right? that's, that's <laughs> but that's I think that's a fair criticism, but it's also actually a bit of a compliment because this game is fundamentally a very simple game. I mean, it is mm-hmm. a very, no, very it, simple it, game. It, 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 and I could see this being the kind of game where you literally, it's like, well, we want to feel like we're playing a big war game and the art's beautiful and the pieces are gorgeous and the iconography is right. awesome. And you're not going to forget how to play this game. All the rules fit on a post-it note. Yeah. And and so it's like, to me, it's exactly the kind of game where I could have one of you two over and it'd be 10 o'clock at night and we've had you know one martini already and we're mm-hmm. going to open mm-hmm. up a bottle of port and we're like... Hey, let's just play this because Twilight Struggle. That's like a real game. That's not going to happen. Like like being drunk has ever stopped us from playing Twilight Struggle. (laughs) No, but my point is is that it's it's it is almost a little bit like cribbage, where like there's some optimal strategy. It's enough to keep you thinking about what you're doing, but it's not like you're going to agonize over it. It's like you're gonna you've got the cards. You've got these. What's your hand? You make your decision. You move on. You have a conversation. So yeah, and then there is something satisfying about the like. Even though the combat is simple, there is something satisfying about like playing the card, showing you the person, being able to be like, haha. And I bet you weren't expecting this third rifleman. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Um, 
I mean, for me, here's the here's the thing. Like, I I feel like a, to a degree in this conversation, we keep looking at each of these systems separately and say, yeah, sure. that's pretty simple. It almost like you'd almost like abstract it away entirely. Except there's just enough going on there that then interacts with these other systems, and so like you know, it's a game that really does. It's a series of very simple systems that add up to a, a slightly more complicated and, and interesting game. Uh, and, and so I, I think, you know, the sort of like piece by piece analysis to some degree does this game a disservice because a lot of these things really start to sing uh, together. I think some of it is that this game and, and David, maybe this is, I think, where you and I are coming out on the same page. This game is lighter than it seems like it should be. Like it is. Yeah, it is. That's what I meant. It is a very light game. It is. It is teachable within minutes. It is. It's almost as light as sort of a a Reiner Kinesia abstract game, like ingenious or something Mm -hmm. like that, where you can just sort of say, hey, here's what's going on. And you don't have that much control over what's going on. And analysis paralysis is going to be boring. So you just sit down and you start playing it and it scratches just enough of like a historical war game itch that you feel like you're doing something a little cooler than playing ingenious. Yeah, you know, but but I think you're right. Like I think it does it does hit that Reiner Kinesia thing. Like for for me when I when I approached it in the same manner, right? It's like Reiner Kinesia says, I'm gonna make a game that takes Chinese checkers and cribbage and puts it together. Right. And then and then he makes it and it works out and they're like, oh, okay, we're and gonna have this like, with color mechanic just and then because. Right. Yeah. Or in this case, it's like, and then Jap- Jap- Japanese people. That'll be that it'll make it <laughs> we'll put samurais on the cover. That'll be great. <laughs> well, I mean, to be fair, if it were Reiner Knizia game, there would have been a central marketplace with different like clan symbols that you could like swap in and out that of. you'd have to bid for. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um <laughs> I mean, you do bid to see who goes first. <laughs> yeah, although, like, that's actually another thing. Okay, like, here's here's my thing that I think you can almost entirely discard. <laughs> uh, so, all the cards are, uh, basically, the Tokugawa cards are all um, even-numbered, and the Ishida cards are all odd-numbered. And so, two cards of equivalent strength and ability, the Tokugawa card will always be the more powerful card. Um, for only for bidding for for bidding for initiative yeah. at the start of a there's turn. There's one tiny mechanic in this game, which is bidding for who goes first, and it uses a number printed on the card, and it's the only time that number yep. printed on the card matters, and it scales perfectly with combat strength. So the most powerful combat cards are sixes and sevens, and the crap cards are ones and twos. But Tokugawa always wins. Yeah, and so like when I like when I went back and played Ashida for the third time, I was like, well, I'm sick of getting screwed on that mechanic. And so I just like minimum bid every time, every like time. Min- until like until the very end, where I was like, ah, I kind of want the initiative, and I'm sitting on a loyalty card. The odds of this one, because that's the highest number card in the game, my odds at that point were actually pretty decent of getting initiative. But like that whole system, like as as the Ashida player, the yellow player, like I got screwed by that so many times i was like okay so actually what this game has taught me is that the sheeta really don't get to go first if the other side (laughs) wants to go first even remotely yeah like like at this point you're just like do i have to bid a card like i don't want yeah 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 (laughs) that was the thing i started to and and, and like and what it's getting at there of course is that you know sheeta was sort of the slower to act uh you know general during during that war but it's kind of a frustrating thing where time and again you have this whole like ooh, what's the what's the bid process here but secretly it's secretly your odds (laughs) of winning are really really low (laughs) so yeah um but you know, you, you asked earlier, uh, David, about sort of this being representative of war games or not, and 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 what I kind of like about this is, um, 
I feel like a lot of older war games are kind of predicated on this desire to recreate every aspect of a battle. Like people want to see like, so taking the squad leader example, people want to like that, that game exists because people want to model and experience like every possible aspect of world war two squad combat. You know, they, you know, you want every single machine gun to be going off, but you also want to model the time it takes to get them set up. Uh, right. You want bullets like blowing through the walls of a brick house. But what type of brick house is it? With the guys on the <laughs> other side being totally like murdered or like, yeah. And so that's that's kind of what the system is about. And so the only constraints on it are basically your ability to learn the rules. Like that's what ASL, like that's, that's the tricky part of ASL is figuring out how the hell all these pieces come together. And what I feel like is is the trend right now, uh, and it's it's a, it's a trend I like, is that a lot of like modern war game design seems to focus on what constrains action, what prevents because anyone can look at a board and say like I want to do this this and this, you know anyone can say well obviously you want to make a flank march here or uh, you want to like mass overwhelming superiority at the center and smash them. Um, you know, those are basic principles and, and, and they're not hard to grasp. So what prevents people from acting on them? You know, why, why do you end up with battles fought awkwardly, uh, fought from suboptimal positions? And I feel like this is a really good example of that because of the way that, for instance, like units almost move with this sense of right of way on the highways. On the right. same turn, two, two different armies can't use the same stretch of road because uh, the one army used it first. And so it's, it's, it's blocked with a moving army. You know, this, this is a game in a very simple way in, that introduces a whole host of constraints to prevent you from doing the obvious things uh, that are there on the board. And I think that is, I think that's sort of where this game is sort of representative and interesting, uh, because in the past we'd want to model like, what was the weather like during this campaign? What was the march speed of these units in the rain along a highway versus a, a country road? Right. Here right. it's much more, you know, how much, how much political capital? had one side built up at this particular moment. Uh, how reliable were its troops? Uh, how was there a traffic jam along that, that, that highway intersection? That's what matters in this game. Yep. I think I agree with that. Yeah. And, and I, uh, I think that all sort of plays to the, to the point of we had a absolutely wonderful weekend uh, that was well, uh, relax you know it was full of relaxation and maybe i would have played a game of asl but probably not right <laughs> right that had been brought up it would have been yeah why don't Ooh, we just play another game of splendor yeah. <laughs> let's, let's exactly let's just, let's just do that one and um and and we were able to, to to play this and it definitely did engage like a different part of my my brain it's totally beautiful um, I, I, I'm wondering, is there, is there just a, a one step up, right? Uh, or maybe I need to start like working on an Alexa app that can tell us what the ASL rules are. <laughs> the Amazon Echo. Tell me what is the armor penetration penalty for terracotta? So I, Julian, I kind of feel like there, there is a step up from this game, but I feel like it actually kind of forks in the road because you can, you can move up, you can, you can move in the more traditional war game. Uh, direction right. for that little added layer of complexity and like tactical variety, or you can move in the more like political 
uh, direction where it's more about those like political constraints and limitations on action. Uh, but I feel like there's a fork in the road that happens one level above Sakigahara. Yeah, I think that's I think that's entirely true, right? And and you know, I think also you know we've talked a lot. You guys talk all the time about sort of differences in time scales, differences in geographic scales. This is an interesting positioning there because it is sort of abstract both in time and in space right i mean it's weeks sort of and it's kind of a country sort of but you know it could just as well like david said be a you know ticket to ride map um if you get any more historically accurate than this you pretty much go down the line of having each unit have different numbers on it and special abilities. And, and that's a much more traditional chip based type war game. And certainly there are all sorts of levels of complexity there where ASL may be on one side and hammer the Scots is sort of at the bottom of that. And then you go more towards games like, uh, like we, the people, right. Which really become much more political in a sense. So yeah, I think you're right. I think you get much more complicated than this, much meatier than this. And you have to sort of decide what kind of game it's going to be. Yeah. I, I, I think like in, in my, my grand, uh, I, I shouldn't be speaking for the design designer, but there's a comment and I'll talk about a game that doesn't exist. So, so we'll take us up there. I think there is a game that, removes that trades the few sort of feeling arbitrary differences in in the in the enemy so like uh one of tokugawa's units it's a single unit and it's a four strength and it can be brought out by any car like there the, there are a few nitpicky things just enough that you like every once in a while have to look to one page of the rule book and be like oh yeah what is the enough. rule for osaka people right so i feel like you could remove that and then put a little bit more of like secondary abilities on like maybe maybe just the loyalty cards. So the loyalty cards could be played as the loyalty card or it could be this historical event that, you know, you could discard it and it counted as two discards for the purposes of movement or or, or, or yeah. like something like like there there is there is a there's another game that's out there that has that basically leans into the fact that the card economy is super important and it is clever and elegant and loops into all these systems that I think just puts a little bit more, um, uh, I think, well, I think it could be some more history, some more, you know, event type stuff like you see in uh, twilight struggle, uh, but maybe just allowing for a few more tactical options. Or strategic options, I should but, say. Yeah, this I'm game sure. is out there in the Fievel Goes West sense, right? The it's it's out there. It's a dream game that you're, yeah, you're talking right? about. No, it's yeah, exactly. but yeah. but I think also you know you start digging in and you start like comparing, uh, I don't know, the Panzer General board game versus the way you know Memoir Forty Four deals with it versus going more traditional like a Tide of Iron, and I, you know, all of a sudden, I, I, you you add those levels of complexity and you have to make other choices too. Yep. Right. If you're going to add that, where do you add this other thing? And certainly card based wargaming is something that I think is very much top of mind with current wargame designers. Um, and it's it's not like brand new, but it's certainly in chip based type war games is a little bit, uh, you know, less, uh, you know, less de rigueur uh, than than it might be in the more Euro game stuff. Um, I'm, I seem to recall Gettysburg maybe filling 
a niche in that space, but I haven't played Gettysburg in years, so I, I'm somebody sure, sure somebody will tell me wrong. Uh, just a quick thing I wanted to note because it's a neat touch that I really like, and I'd forgotten to mention it. Um, another thing I'd, I'd taken a while to appreciate the the uh, role of was sieges. Um, that at first, because you you can put two units in a castle and they can't do anything, and they basically just wait to get killed. And I think like at first I was like, why would you ever do that? Then why wouldn't you fight the battle outside? Well, each unit that gets killed in a siege, you get to draw an extra card. So if you can see the various castles around the map with troops, um, not only does it not only does it prevent, present an obstacle uh, for for your enemy moving around the map. Uh, but it's also a really cool way to, you know, yeah, you lost the siege, but now it is the only way to get your hand to increase uh, without just sitting on cards. Uh, which I again I thought was sort of a neat like a, a neat touch that that sort of introduced like here's this here's this odd little rule set, and it took me a couple games to realize oh that's actually hugely important if you can if you can get it working right. Right, it's a way of throwing away cards or throwing yeah. away units to trade them for cards. Yeah. Yeah. Uh so that does it for uh Sakigahara, um, which is available from, from GMT. I think it's I think it's still in print. Hang on. I think it just went into its third printing. I just looked it up. Good for them. Oh wow. wow. Uh although maybe not. Holy holy hell. Surprise! On, on Amazon, <laughs> it's on Amazon, the cheapest one is 175. Okay. Oops. And so, if you want now, it in the box, I hope you have I hope you have thirteen hundred and ninety-five dollars. All right. Yeah, well that's just the stupid people. So uh, during Pass East, just buy Rob uh, a couple of nice cocktails and we'll bring we'll, out his we'll copy. Play a game. Uh I did I did find it endearing, uh David, because you, you're not you're not really from the from the land of wargaming. Uh, I did love when you when you looked on the back of the board game to see the information that every board game gives you, which is the complexity level, like for what age level it's appropriate, uh, approximate time it takes to set up and play. Uh, every bit game in the world has this information, pretty standardized. And David, what does what does the back of Sakigahara tell you? <laughs> we're, we're sitting down. It's like nine thirty, ten o'clock. We're like, oh, I'll sit down and play it and. My partner Chelsea asked me how long is it going to take, and I flip over and I'm like, "Each turn is two weeks. What's going on here?" <laughs> Game scale. Game one, scale. One block equals five thousand men, uh, which tells you a, tells you a lot about the information board like board gamers want versus like board gamers. I think they are, they, there's there's a Venn diagram, but they are not in fact like the same the same species of gamer. Oh my gosh! Uh, so awesome. so yeah, I would. So at this point, I would say um, it looks like on Board Game Geek you can you can pre-order the next printing uh, for for about sixty bucks. Uh, keep an eye open for it uh, in, in Board Game Stories. You know, in in the space of a week, I played it four times. Uh, I could probably play it four more, uh, which automatically puts it ahead of a good many board games and a good many war games that are in my collection. Uh, so really enjoyed Sakigahara, uh, a, a very beautiful and simple, simple board game. And thank you so much for playing with me, gentlemen, and uh, talking about it on the show today. Anytime. My pleasure. That will do it for this week's episode of Three Moves Ahead, which is produced by Michael Hermes and hosted by the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about the show or discuss this episode with our community by visiting our website at threemovesahead.net. We'll be back next week with another Three Moves Ahead. Until then, this is Rob Zachney saying goodnight.